When Smells Like Yukon launched way back in 2007, local radio was the place to be. You knew you'd made it when you landed a six-minute segment that aired in some northern backwater every couple of weeks. Podcasters were just a bunch of nerds who couldn't cut it in the big leagues. Thanks to my friend Mark and me, perceptions about podcasting are quickly changing. Our decision to reboot Smells Like Yukon as a podcast has lent the medium a legitimacy that's been sorely lacking. Mark and I also have this totally original notion that a podcast doesn't have to be a serial waste of your precious time and Northwest Tell data allowance. It might, for example, become a vehicle for criminal justice. What if Definitely Not Smells Like Yukon could shed new light on an old crime and also tell a great story? As far as we know, it would be a podcasting first. Lucky for us, the Yukon has no shortage of crimes whose perpetrators have never been punished, like that muffin sculpture in Haynes Junction. But even then, that's just a petty crime, hardly worthy of our abilities as steely investigative journalists. We wanted to go after the big game, perhaps the biggest game of all. So I dusted off my magnifying glass, and Mark borrowed some handcuffs from Ryan Leaf, and we were ready to play detective. This is definitely not Smells Like Yukon, the podcast that claims to be nothing like Smells Like Yukon, but for all intents and purposes, is almost exactly the same. My name is Jesse DeVost. Each episode, my friend Mark Kepke and I go all Holmes and Watson, or maybe Koenig and Reed, and podcast the hell out of some crazy Yukon mystery. We found our subject pretty easily. It was an infamous crime spree that made front-page news over two decades ago. For those of you who don't hoard the Whitehorse star like we do, I'll explain. Is it crime-splain or pod-splain? Anyway, there was a dark time when a homegrown terrorist group called the Yukon Liberation Front, the YLF, went on a chainsaw massacre that Yukoners will never forget. Their horrific acts did more than disturb the sleep of countless woodland creatures. They destroyed a bunch of Alaska highway billboards advertising the perfect fast food meal, hotel room, assay testing lab, or whatever. After this reign of terror, the YLF just kind of disappeared. No one was ever arrested, the members remained anonymous, and thousands of unliberated Yukoners were left to wonder if the YLF had a manifesto written in anything other than sawdust and spray paint. As cold cases go, this was Rock River in mid-January. So when Mark and I started to dig around, we were hoping for the best, but we were also prepared for the possibility that no one knows nothing. First off, Mark and I structured our investigation to suit our individual strengths. I started to work my undercover contacts in both the government and radical underground, while Mark focused on what he does best. I have to admit I was shocked it took Mark that many keystrokes to type Yukon Liberation Front into Google. But never mind. Mark joins me now to tell you what he turned up after an exhaustive online search. So believe it or not, a Google search turned up a measly six results. The first lead was a 1995 Hansard exchange between Liberal MLA Jack Cable and Yukon Party Cabinet Minister Bill Brewster. For dramatic effect, I had their dialogue reenacted by two nine-year-old boys who were willing to work for peanuts. They also had nothing better to do, and you can trust me on that one. 
I've noticed a number of science vacations with the initials hey, YLF. Hey, hey, maybe you can have the peanuts after you've read the lines. I've noticed a number of signs spray-painted with the initials YLF. Has the minister been able to identify the people who are under the heating of the Yukon Liberation Front? No. For all my detective work, I had failed to come up with anybody. Does the minister know whether or not these people are devoted simply to ripping down signs, or do they have a broader social upheaval agenda? My detective work has not told me that either. So Jack Cable didn't know nothing, and neither did Minister Brewster. My next lead pointed to a white horse lawyer named Kyle Carruthers. In a 2014 column for the Yukon News, this proud BNR shares a childhood memory of seeing, quote-unquote, commercial highway signs that were routinely spray-painted with the acronym YLF. Since he was just a kid at the time, I figured Mr. Carruthers probably didn't know nothing either. But if we ever need an informed opinion about the best episodes of Rugrats, he'll be our guy. So, my Google search for YLF continued in earnest. And you don't get more earnest than the folks at the Yukon Conservation Society. As it happened, Google revealed that longtime YCS employee Lewis Rifkin once wrote an article for Rabble.ca that glorified the exploits of the YLF. I found this really suspicious, which is why Jesse and I decided to confront Lewis at a local coffee shop. Why were you writing about the Yukon Liberation Front like 20, 30 years after this event? Why were you dragging that up again? It came up, I believe, because I was super irritated about the proliferation of billboards along the Alaska Highway. The Yukon Liberation Front one of their most visible, or non-visible, I suppose, actions was removing billboards along the highway. They did a bunch of crazy things, but that was their, their high point, their apogee, is that the word for it? Where they actually physically went out and did direct action. And I think we, at least I was sort of inspired by them, said, oh my God, this is somebody not only just talked the talk, they walked the walk. For the record, I was never involved with the Yukon Liberation Front as a direct member uh, have alibis. It does seem kind of suspicious that you are dragging it up and writing about it. It's almost like people would sort of forgotten about it and if I was a perpetrator of a crime like this and got away with it, I'd want to remind people every once in a while that this thing happened just to be sort of tooting my own horn. I, I think it's like, um, I, I like to think, you know how people put up Che Guevara posters? It's sort of, you're inspired by the radicals, the revolutionaries, but you don't necessarily go out and do what they did, but their thoughts, their writings, their deeds inspire you perhaps to be radical in a different fashion in your own life. The revolution continues, but perhaps not with chopping down billboards. Do you own a chainsaw? No, I don't, and I don't think I've I did own a chainsaw once, but it was a plug-in one, you know, one of those ones, that, so it's not gasoline. So it couldn't have been used along the highway because there's no plow plug-in points. Do you know how to use spray paint? Maybe. <laughs> and you're telling us 100% that you weren't involved in this? Yes, actually, I can with a clear conscience say I was not involved in the events that have been alluded to in this interview. Now, if anyone thinks Mark went a little rough on the subject, we were just following standard operating procedure. Everyone knows in cases like this, you start by pointing the finger at people with foreign accents. It's counterterrorism 101. Still, Lewis's alibi did check out. 
He wasn't even in the Yukon during the YLF's campaign of destruction. However, he did provide some interesting information about one of the YLF's most infamous attacks. The best one that I know of was Kentucky Fried Chicken put a sign up and they got smart to the activities of the Liberation Front. They put a huge metal um, uh, pole in the ground. It was like a quarter inch metal. You know, no way that could be cut. And then they put out a big sign that said, KFC, the joy of not cooking. Some individual added an S in front of the knot. So the company in question had to take the sign down themselves, which was great. We've heard that KFC is so popular in Old Crow that the RCMP detachment has flown it in for its Christmas open house. So we knew that no one from Old Crow could have possibly been involved, which narrowed our list of suspects by about 400 Yukoners. At this point, Mark had pretty much exhausted his leads from Google. But you can't really rely on Google for a serious criminal investigation. Or can you? Fortunately, I'd been busy with my own inquiries. I certainly thought about calling the RCMP and asking them to send over all their files on the YLF. But uh, there's just so many buts to consider here. The biggest but being my concern that our local Mounties wouldn't take us seriously. Or maybe they'd charge us with mischief again. And you know, if the cops had the slightest clue, wouldn't the YLF terrorists already be modeling orange jumpsuits in cages on Herschel Island? or at the very least, doing some light community service. So instead of calling the cops, I reached out to the Yukon Workers' Compensation Board. Surely any terrorist group undertaking the dangerous work of chainsawing signs in the dead of night would want to be fully covered in the case of workplace injury. Hello, Yukon Workers' Compensation After Hours Emergency Line. To my surprise, the board had no employer records for the Yukon Liberation Front. I won't tell you how, but I also managed to get my hands on a critical piece of evidence. A section of chainsawed signpost with obvious teeth marks. I planned to query the National Chainsaw Registry for a match, only to discover the Harper government killed the registry back in 2012, to the great delight of chainsaw massacrists across the country. Massacrist? Is that even a word? By this point, Mark and I felt pretty defeated. We'd spared no effort or expense trying to crack the case, but we were no closer to solving it than anyone else. When it came right down to it, we didn't know nothing either. Still, we refused to give up, and whenever Mark and I met to review our case notes, we kept on circling back to one person, Louis Rifkind. We both got the feeling that Louis had been kind of shifty during our first interrogation, that he knew more than what he told us. So we set up a stakeout in Baked Cafe. It didn't have to wait long for our favorite shady character to wander in. Mark and I were totally prepared to rough him up, but it wasn't necessary. Walking him down the hall to Bullet Hole Bagels seemed to send him the subtle message, and he quickly cracked under pressure. Mark and I were blown away by what we heard. So what you're saying is you, you know who did this. You're philosophically and revolutionarily aligned with them, but you're not going to tell us who they were. The individuals in question have now, at least most of them, have gone on to positions of authority and power, either in commercial uh, ventures or within the bureaucracy themselves. They have now become the establishment. The hippies that came up here in the 60s and settled down, they seem to have been the majority of the perpetrators. They were the ones who were offended 
by the visual blot on the landscape. Uh, they were the ones that were probably huge fans of Edward Abbey, the Monkey Wrench Gang. From my understanding, there were very few born and raised Yukoners involved. My gut tells me that some of the people who were involved in this were probably people who spent quite a bit of time uh, driving the highway, so I'm guessing country residential residents. Instead of following the money, follow the highway. <laughs> yes, I would say that you're on the right track there. Now it was just a matter of naming names. Perhaps I shouldn't say any more at the moment. <laughs> was it <laughs> I am not at liberty to divulge any names or contacts that might or might not have driven along the highway at those times. Was a involved? Um, oh look, a squirrel. <laughs> I think you're at very least involved in the cover-up and that makes you complicit and guilty to some degree. There's a statute of limitations on petty vandalism, I believe. Petty vandalism? And here Mark and I thought we were on the verge of solving one of the most heinous crimes in Yukon history. We had names and everything. So much for becoming the next serial. But maybe that's fine. So we're not going to get some retired hippies chucked in the slammer. They drive everyone in the pen crazy anyway with their stories of the 60s, when weed was illegal and love was free, and the Yukon theater was already past its prime. You know what I mean. Also, these ex-terrorists own chainsaws and clearly know how to use them, so that might have worried us just a little. It's not that we're chicken, it's just because the exhaust from two-stroke engines is totally bad for the environment. Also, we started to ask ourselves, what if the YLF's revolution had actually succeeded? What if the senseless maiming of highway billboards was just the start, or even a diversion, and they've quietly risen to power, shaping the very fabric of Yukon today? which is basically what Lewis told us during our interrogation. And this is why, to many BNRs, the real Yukon has been lost with its southern imports working for the government. Uh, like me. But also, more importantly, fancy coffee shops and bike lanes, YCS, and dare to say it, even podcasters. Whether or not anyone knows anything, maybe we've been liberated after all. Liberated from what? Who knows? We've got a bucket of chicken to polish off. You have been listening to Smells Like You Can, or definitely not Smells Like You Can. It depends on your personal preference. Join Jess and Mark for the next episode, when they will talk to Yukoners about when and where it is socially acceptable to perform a nasal blowout. Hint, you should not do it anywhere near a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Until the next time, keep on smelling on, or not smelling on. How much longer are we going to keep this up? <laughs>